To many of us, artificial intelligence sounds like some technology right out of a far-fetched science fiction movie. However, the technology of AI is becoming increasingly common, from self-driving cars to voice-activated assistants. How do we weigh the benefits of AI with its potential harm? Our speaker today provides blueprints to AI regulation in order to maximize the good and minimize the bad. Good evening and welcome to the program. Thanks for joining us. I'm Liz Brailsford, President and CEO of the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth. Our program tonight features Dr. Daryl West, Vice President and Director of Gover Governance Studies at Brookings Institution. He is joined in conversation with Jim Wilson, who leads Accenture's Information Technology and Business Research. I'm looking forward to this enlightening discussion on Daryl's new book about policymaking in the era of artificial, artificial intelligence. That being said, please remember to purchase a copy of Turning Point, Policymaking in the Era of Artificial Intelligence at Interabang Books, our local bookshop partner. Our audience receives a 10% discount from Interabang Books in the online store by using the code DFWWORLD. And remember that discount code is good for any of the books in your shopping cart, not just Turning Point. We have a virtual schedule of uh, we have a full schedule of virtual programs, rather, so remember to check out our website at dfwworld.org for newly scheduled events. I'd also like to remind everyone at this time that you can also sponsor a program uh, for $500 or $1,000, and to get in touch with Alana Buenrostro at Buenrostro at her phone number, uh, which we will give at the end of this uh, session about sponsorship opportunities. And now here is Steve Gardner, professor and director of McBride Center for International Business at Baylor, who will introduce our guests. Thank you, Steve. Truly, thank you for your wonderful support. We love to partner with you and appreciate that. And with that, I give it to you. Well, thanks, Liz. We at Baylor have been so pleased with the programs we've had so far and uh, to be working with the World Fairs Council on this year's Global Business Forum, continuing a really close relationship that we've had for a very long time. Our topic for this evening is particularly fascinating and it's so important for all of us to be better informed about opportunities and challenges presented by a wide range of new technologies, artificial intelligence, robotics, genomics, information technologies that are interacting with each other and making it possible for us to have virtual meetings like this one and to develop new vaccines in a fraction of the time that was necessary in the past. So, uh, so happy to have uh, Daryl West with us today, who will be more fully uh, introduced by, by our moderator for the evening. But Daryl, thank you again for being with us. Uh, spoke at a Baylor conference that we had on the Baylor campus back in 2018 on AI and robotics and was a keynote speaker for that. So we're so happy to have Daryl back with us. Uh, and I'm th thrilled to have uh, that our moderator this evening is Jim Wilson, uh, the Global Managing Director for IT and Business Research at Accenture in San Francisco. 
Uh, Jim is co-author of Human Plus Machine, Reimagining World uh, Work in the Age of Artificial Intelligence. And he's a frequent contributor to the Harvard Business Review. Uh, he's uh, uh, writes on issues related to technology in the workplace. So thank you, uh, Daryl and James, and all of you for joining what I expect to be a pretty mind-blowing conversation. Thank you all. Good evening, everyone. Uh, so I'm really looking forward to tonight's conversation with Daryl West. Daryl, as Liz mentioned, is the Vice President and Director of Governance Studies at the Brookings Institution, where he researches artificial intelligence, robotics, and the future of labor. Daryl is a prolific author and has written more than 10 books, including a new release every year from 2018 to 2020. And his latest book is called Turning Point, uh, as mentioned at the top of the broadcast, uh, Policymaking in the Era of AI. And the book is co-authored with John Allen. And I think it's a fantastic book. It really offers a practical view on many of the most important questions in this era of artificial intelligence. In particular, what does it mean for people? What does AI mean for people? And as AI becomes a part of our everyday human experience, how can we best shape government policy and even industrial policy to really capture the benefits of artificial intelligence, but also think about and reduce the risks. So Daryl, uh, thanks for joining the conversation with me tonight. Uh, I'd, I'd like to begin by asking you if you could share some examples of how AI is already at work in business uh, and in society. Well, thank you, Liz, Steve, and Jim. It's great to be with you at Baylor World Affairs Council. So I appreciate your On the question of some examples, AI is one of the transformative technologies of our time. John Allen and I wrote this book, and we want to give some examples in terms of how AI already is being used. In the finance area, for example, being abused in fraud detection. Uh, AI is very good at spotting outliers abnormalities that then be inspected by there actually is fraud that is taking place. Uh, we're also seeing AI in wealth management. Turns out that AI is less emotional humans, so therefore management. Uh, we're also seeing AI being deployed in automated stores. Uh, Amazon Go stores are fully automated. It's a combination of AI and computer vision that really is enabling uh, stores to operate without any sales clerk, no cash registers. You basically go in, go shopping, you leave, and it automatically charges your credit card and your mobile payment uh, system. So literally every sector is going to be transformed by AI. It's really being deployed in many different areas. Okay. And I heard we might have had a bit of an echo earlier, and I, I apologize. We'll try to minimize that. I think the, the moderator had put me on mute so, to reduce the echo. Uh, I, it seems to me that, Daryl, there are 
kind of uh, conspicuous examples of AI, but then there are also kind of uh, less conspicuous examples. And I really like the way you kind of showed that spectrum. You know, they're, they're embedded, for instance, in financial systems, in, um, you know, in the way that we interact with, uh, you know, with they, in the way that they reduce fraud and that sort of thing. AI is in our information technology infrastructure. In some ways, it's probably uh, managing the Zoom call in, you know, in different ways. Uh, I wanted to hear from you. It sounds like AI is out there in a significant way. Uh, the robotic horse, in a sense, has left the barn. And I wanted to get your sense of uh, how policy can catch up to kind of corral AI, particularly in areas where it needs to be corralled? A great question. Uh, uh, the short the answer, short answer is, is the policy, policy can catch up catch with, up with, with the, the AI systems. Uh, my colleague, uh, my colleague at Brookings, Tom Wheeler, Wheeler book entitled Kyle Gutenberg to Google. Google. He basically looks at the history of technology innovation, innovation. and uh, kind of looks at examples from the printing press, the telephone, television, and computers. And in virtually every case, the technology always rushes ahead, gets deployed broadly, starts to create problems. That gets the attention of policymakers. And then at that point, uh, the policy starts to uh, catch up. And we end up with new policies and new regulations that can really uh, deal with, deal with the problems. problems. We're pretty much We're pretty at much the, same, at the point same point in terms of digital, digital technology. technology. Uh, we've now had we've now 30, had years, 30 of years of the internet, internet uh, lots uh, of new lots applications, applications over the last, the last few, few decades. decades. But now, but now there's, there's a backlash, backlash. backlash against technology. The public is upset about loss of privacy, cybersecurity hacks, uh, uh, loss of competition in the marketplace, the rise of large internet uh, platforms. And so now policymakers actually are starting to pay attention. Uh, they're starting to hold congressional hearings, uh, starting to educate themselves on what the issues are, what the problems are, and what the possible uh, solutions are. So we think that we're on the cusp of a situation where there's going to end up being more public oversight, more public engagement, and likely more public uh, regulation. Uh, California already has passed a major privacy law uh, we believe uh, Congress uh, over the next couple of years is going to seriously consider a national privacy law uh, because the companies actually don't want to end up in a situation where they have 50 different sets of privacy policies. Uh, we are seeing concerns in terms of market competition and antitrust issues. Uh, so uh, there already are some uh, federal uh, enforcement actions that are taking place uh, in that uh, area. Uh, and uh, there are uh, other problems of uh, technology uh, that are likely going to become uh, the object either of congressional uh, legislation or administrative action. So the policy at this point uh, is at the point where it is going to start uh, catching up with the technology. And as Jim mentioned at the beginning, the goal is to maintain our innovation edge. Uh, we certainly don't want to destroy the uh, innovation engine, uh, but we want to minimize some of the problems that we already see. Very good. So, you know, overall, if we're going to kind of kick it up and look at how the U.S. is doing in terms of its AI performance relative to, you know, say, uh, Europe, particularly around issues of trust and privacy, how are we doing, would you say? How do we stack up? 
I mean, the U.S. is still the global leader in many aspects of technology. We have a great uh, tech sector. Many of our leading companies are global enterprises that are used all around the world. Uh, there are particular areas uh, that I think represent uh, areas of strength, and that certainly includes uh, robotics, uh, cloud computing. Uh, a lot of data storage now is uh, taking place on the cloud, and data processing is taking place there. Uh, the U.S. still has an edge on uh, semiconductors, but I think there's some areas where we need to do a better job. Uh, our competition at this point really is China. China's investing a huge amount of money in artificial intelligence, and there are some areas where they're actually ahead of the United States. So, for example, mobile payment systems. Uh, like when I've gone to China, I have never seen any young person under the age of 30 that use cash uh, or a credit card. It's all mobile uh, payment systems. Uh, they kind of uh, uh, have the scan feature on the phone. It's fully automated, very quick, and very convenient for uh, people. So uh, that's an area where the United States uh, needs to do better. And then, courtesy of COVID, uh, we've discovered flaws in our system of online education and education technology in general. Uh, we all have kind of seen the problems of what happened when uh, COVID uh, uh, closed the schools, and students had to switch to uh, online platforms, and some students were able to adapt, uh, many were not. Uh, teachers complained about uh, the difficulty of kind of conveying all the material that they needed uh, to, how you hold the attention of young kids uh, on a screen. So uh, clearly uh, that is an area where we need to do a much better job. Okay, very good. So we kind of set the scene there. Uh, you know, AI is out there. Uh, there are a lot of things happening in the in the policy space right now. I want to take a you know take a step back, maybe get a bit theoretical. Uh, AI has been around for decades, um, going back to the the Dartmouth con the conference in the 1950s, for instance. Um, how do you define artificial intelligence? Uh, th that's a very important question, and I give a lot of talks on AI, and I think this is the hardest thing for people to uh, grasp, because uh, as uh, you, uh, Jim, mentioned in your uh, intro, AI is appearing in a lot of different forms, and so people get confused of, you know, the AI application in finance versus healthcare versus a retail versus autonomous vehicles, like, what's the common element? So the common element across all those AI applications is it basically consists of automated software that analyzes data, text, and or images, and then acts on that analysis. So the key feature, and the thing that really distinguishes it from previous generations of computing is the learning capability. Dallas Baptist University is a global Christ-centered institution whose students are making an impact in business, law, medicine, education, public service, and the list goes on. DBU is honored to sponsor the Global IQ podcast and to offer a significant scholarship for World Affairs Council members towards a master's in international studies. For further information about this scholarship or about DBU in general, email Lee Bratcher at leeb at dbu.edu. You kind of can analyze information in real time and then act on uh, that analysis. So for example, with autonomous vehicles, uh, cars can communicate uh, back and forth and basically say there's a pothole uh, up, up ahead or there's traffic congestion or there's some unusual traffic configuration. Maybe there's construction going on. 
and let the cars behind know. And so the AI system in one vehicle can alert the AI system in a following vehicle of what the road conditions are going to be. And then that follow-up car uh, can uh, take the appropriate action. So it's really that uh, analysis uh, in real time and the learning dimension that I think uh, really characterizes uh, these types of algorithms. You know, with the car example, I would think if the, if the smart machine, if the AI is learning in real time from data like road data, you know, I, I like how, how you, you pointed out there might be safety enhancement, but there might also be additional risks that weren't originally modeled in the data model. Um, Want to get your take on that. Are there kind of unintended consequences of machines that are learning in real time? Uh, absolutely. Uh, and in this particular example, you're right. I mean, autonomous vehicles actually are likely to be much safer than human-driven uh, uh, vehicles because we know in America there are more than 40,000 people who die in highway accidents uh, every year, and 90% of those accidents occur because of human error, uh, human intoxication, or human distraction. And there certainly are risks of uh, autonomous uh, vehicles, but they are not going to get drunk or distracted. And so their safety record is likely to be uh, much better uh, than with humans. But at the very same time that there are going to be some clear uh, benefits of autonomous vehicles, there are also risks. There's the risk of cyber hacks uh, that could hijack uh, the vehicle. There could be privacy invasions. Autonomous vehicles are going to collect all sorts of information on uh, people. Uh, there are uh, some autonomous uh, vehicles that uh, are going to end up uh, collecting uh, tens of thousands of different kinds of uh, data on what happens in that vehicle from the performance of the engine, uh, the speed of the vehicle, uh, and many uh, different aspects, you know, what you're doing uh, when you are uh, in that uh, particular vehicle. So it's kind of the general challenge of technology in general that the very same technology can create enormous benefits, but then expose us to risks. And so the challenge for policymakers now is to kind of find that magic spot where we maintain the benefits, but minimize the risks. I see, okay. You know, as I, as I reflect back on my, um, my in my life, you know, the various computers that I've had, like the original kind of the Macintosh, um, and then, of course, PCs and that sort of thing. I think a lot of people, including myself, sometimes wonder how does AI, you know, actually differ from like a Macintosh that might have been, you know, on your on your bedroom desk in 1983? Is it that is it that point around data uh, mostly, or is there something else going on there? I would say the key dimension is the data uh, aspect of that, but also the dynamic nature of the analysis. I mean, AI algorithms can process an extraordinary amount of information literally in real time. So for example, to go back to the autonomous uh, vehicle, like an autonomous car has a LIDAR on the top, which basically is like a radar that is uh, scanning the, uh, the upcoming highway. And then there are cameras uh, scattered all around uh, the vehicle. You need an integrated data system that kind of takes all that information, analyzes it in real time, and keeps you in the right lane. 
And literally, you know, if the AI is off by five feet or 10 feet, you crash. You crash into the vehicle uh, in the next lane. And so uh, AI is absolutely crucial uh, in that particular example, but it kind of illustrates the more general point that uh, it can process the data in ways that uh, kind of a desktop computer or a mobile device is not able to do. But then there's also a dynamic element, the learning element, the ability to adapt as new information comes along. And so that's a really tremendous combination. And the thing that is really exciting to me uh, is right now there are lots of different technology revolutions going on. So we have AI, we have data analytics, we have machine learning, we have supercomputing. I mean, there's just all sorts of things. And I, I'm really excited about the period coming up in the next five to 10 years, because there's just going to be extraordinary advances in the applications, the sophistication, and the, the very kinds of activities that they can undertake. There's a lot of combining going on in the examples you were just talking about. It seems that AI draws on you know, sensor technology, on sound processing technology, on language understanding technologies, potentially. There's a lot of kind of sensing and trying to comprehend going on in an AI system that really my 1983 Macintosh, Apple Macintosh did not have. So I think, that, I think that's a really interesting uh, way of coming at it. So thank you, Daryl, on, on that one. I, I wanted to, shift gears a bit um, and, and take a look at some industries uh, as your book does. Uh, and I'd like to start with the healthcare sector, uh, something that is front of mind for most of us these days, especially the, the past year. What are some examples or applications of AI in the healthcare space right now? There are lots of innovations taking place in healthcare, and a number of them do relate to artificial intelligence. So, for example, during COVID, like one of the most extraordinary things we have seen has been this rapid development of vaccines. And it turns out AI is part of the story of how we were able to develop uh, those new vaccines in such a short period of time. I mean, typically vaccine development uh, spans a number of years, uh, not uh, you know, three to six uh, months, which is basically what uh, we were able uh, to do. And it turns out that, you know, when you're developing either new drug therapies or new vaccines, what scientists like to do is go back to the literature, kind of uh, scan the literature, uh, look at uh, chemical compounds and figure out uh, where they're applicable, you know, what are the kind of situations uh, they deal with, are there other kinds of uh, diseases uh, where uh, particular chemical compounds seem to be effective, and then uh, develop uh, new drugs or new vaccines that can uh, take advantage of that insights. One of the ways that AI expedited vaccine development was by taking over and helping on that literature review because AI can literally process text very rapidly. And so as opposed to like a graduate student, you know, reading a bunch of articles and then saying, hey, I think, you know, this particular compound uh, might be helpful. You can have the AI read the literature interpret what is going on, find novel examples of, uh, and, and then use that information to create uh, drug uh, treatment uh, breakthroughs. So uh, that's one way in which AI really helped us a lot during COVID. Another thing that has really developed is that AI has gotten to the point where it can read 
x-rays and CAT scans with a very high degree of accuracy. Now, it's not quite as accurate as a human radiologist, but there have been peer-reviewed uh, scientific journal articles that show the AI just a few percentage points below of that of a human radiologist. It, it turns out that, you know, if you scan a bunch of x-rays and then tell the computer, this is an abnormality and this image is not uh, abnormal, and if you show them a bunch of images, then the AI can learn to spot what is a normal looking lung versus a lung that has abnormalities. And so again, that's a way that AI is turning out to be very helpful in diagnosing diseases. Uh, COVID also has demonstrated other uh, types of innovations, uh, the use of video conferencing to deal with your uh, doctor, the rise of uh, telemedicine, uh, because uh, you know people don't wanna physically uh, go to a doctor's office uh, or to the hospital, you know, for that first round of consultation where you're just kind of reviewing your symptoms, uh, telemedicine and video conferencing is uh, perfectly effective. And then obviously, you know, if you have higher level symptoms and uh, the doctor needs to see you in person, uh, then you can uh, go for uh, in-person care. But for that initial consultation, uh, some of these new uh, technologies that uh, COVID kind of encouraged uh, all of us to start using have turned out to be very beneficial. Do you think AI can make the, the healthcare experience more human in the sense that it could kind of bust through some of the bureaucracy in the healthcare system, be it kind of the health insurance uh, system or um, you know, just the, the, the doctor's visit where doctors end up quite often looking at a computer screen for half the visit, inputting information. It sounds like what you were saying, you know, with language understanding, there might be opportunity for the doctor to kind of, or the patient to speak directly into the computer and get kind of the, the input out of the way. Just curious to get your take on that. Well, you know, your book is entitled uh, Human Plus Machine. And I think that is really a good way to think about technology. The technology is not going to replace the human. It's certainly not going to replace the physician, but the technology can augment human performance and make us better. It can create greater efficiencies. It can make sure that your doctor is up to date on the latest uh, medical advances, on the latest uh, treatments. Uh, it can personalize the treatment. Like, you know, all of us wanted to be treated as an individual. Technology can personalize the treatment in a way that drug therapies are tailored to your particular conditions. And eventually, when our understanding of genetics uh, grows to the point, uh, you can basically take uh, advantage of uh, uh, your molecular uh, structure to really personalize the drug treatment to your particular genetic uh, situation. So, you know, when you kind of look at uh, healthcare five to 10 years down the road, I think there are several advances between AI, uh, our knowledge of uh, genetics, uh, and the use of uh, data analytics uh, that can combine in ways uh, that hopefully will make uh, medical treatments much more effective. Very good. I, I like, you know, the idea of, you know, aug personalized medicine, um, one area, kind of augmenting science uh, is another area. I'm hearing more and more stories of pharmaceutical companies setting up uh, labs very much focused on AI and finding, for instance, cancer treatments. Um, GlaxoSmithKline, for instance, is setting up a, a new AI lab, which kind of builds on your point, I think. Um, 
Uh, you know, if we, and you started to hint at this already, but if, you know, we take a, you know, five or 10 year view looking out, or do you, do you think we're going to, we're going to see more kind of AI systems in hospitals, in um, healthcare facilities, in uh, basic research, uh, kind of accelerating discovery, acceler uh, accelerating treatment, you know, finding new treatments? I do think that is going to be the case. And, you know, during COVID, uh, we actually saw an example of that uh, in the right. form of uh, ways uh, AI help uh, develop uh, some of these new uh, vaccines. So I would expect that model to go forward. I mean, I think the key thing is we have to continue to invest in research and development. Uh, that's how uh, America actually has achieved greatness in the technology area that, you know, we invested uh, several decades ago in this thing that eventually became the internet and uh, became a global platform for lots of different types of activities. So I think we need to keep doing that. And especially with healthcare, healthcare is such a big part of our overall economy. It's obviously important in terms of our health and uh, well-being. Uh, but I expect there to be a number of innovations uh, coming online over the next uh, five to 10 years uh, that that people are going to appreciate. Uh, it'll improve diagnosis, it'll improve uh, treatment. Uh, and if we're lucky, it might actually help us get a handle on healthcare costs, which obviously has been a huge problem in the United States. Very good. Uh, I wanna just briefly uh, shift gears back to a topic we were, we were talking about uh, five, 10 minutes ago, and that is the transportation sector. And I, I wanted to get your take on when you thought uh, autonomous vehicles were really going to be ready for prime time where, you know, we're going to go out there on the roads and regularly see kind of robotic cars or autonomous vehicles. Well, it's funny. It was just a few years ago that when I would ask industry experts that question, their answer was 2020. Like they <laughs> thought we were right on the verge. And by 2020, uh, you would uh, start seeing autonomous vehicles on the road. So that clearly did not happen. I mean, you know, we are seeing pilot testing uh, in a few states, but uh, nothing much beyond that. Uh, what happened is the, it turns out that with autonomous vehicles, it's actually easy to program the AI to deal with about 80 to 90% of the road conditions. You know, the uh, road conditions that are predictable, like, you know, driving, you know, 55 miles per hour down an interstate highway, uh, limited access roads, like that's actually pretty easy to do it. And we could actually uh, do that right now. The problem is that last 10 to 20% of road conditions, you know, human beings do crazy and unpredictable things on the highways. Uh, I'm sure in uh, Dallas and Fort Worth and uh, Waco, uh, all of us when we're out on the roads uh, see that all the time. It, it's when humans are unpredictable that really throws off the autonomous vehicle and it throws off uh, the artificial intelligence. And so that problem has really delayed what people thought uh, was going to be much uh, better progress. So I think right now we've kind of shifted the vision where we're probably on a five to 10 to maybe even 15 year time horizon, but we're not talking about autonomous vehicles becoming a consumer market item where you know, you're going to go to your local dealership and buy an autonomous vehicle. Instead, what is more likely to happen is autonomous vehicles are going to start to be used in niche markets. 
taxis, ride-sharing services, and long-distance truck driving. Like those are probably the areas uh, that are going to adopt the technology uh, first. Uh, and you know, if those kind of projects uh, end up uh, going well, then the innovation will diffuse into other sectors. But it's probably going to be a much longer process than what people envisioned just a few years ago. Okay, great answer. Good. So, um, so let's let's move to another uh, area, uh, an area that you know, another industry that many of us, particularly in the past year, have been engaging with quite a bit, and that is online shopping. Uh, and, you know, your book has a, a great chapter on e-commerce, and, you know, you, you call out uh, Amazon on the one hand, uh, also some Chinese uh, retailers like Alibaba, uh, you know, and one thing I think is really interesting is that these online e-commerce platforms that we're using more and more are really world-class. Uh, they lead other industries in terms of their adoption and use of artificial intelligence. And I wanted to get your take. Why are these e-commerce platforms getting so good at AI? Well, COVID pushed what otherwise might have been five years of technology innovation into either five weeks or five months, uh, meaning COVID really speeded up the adoption curve in a lot of different areas. And e-commerce clearly was a uh, was and will continue to be a big winner uh, just in terms of how consumer behavior uh, changed. So, you know, when the pandemic developed, you know, we all needed to stay at home. We had to engage in social uh, distancing. And so people started to shop much more online. Uh, I, you know, I see it in my neighborhood, uh, like, you know, late in the afternoon and the early evening, like the delivery trucks are like all over uh, the streets in DC. And I'm sure that's uh, true in uh, Texas as well. Uh, what these companies have managed to do is that when you reach a certain scale, there's so much consumer information that you're able to gain because people are shopping online that it allows you to improve your product even better. So for example, one way that AI is being used in e-commerce is through product recommendations. I'm sure you've all had the experience, you, you're on an e-commerce platform, you're kind of looking at different products and then something will pop up will, that'll say, perhaps you might be interested in these products. Now, those recommendations are based on an AI analysis of your online shopping behavior. It can kind of look at what you have purchased, what you have looked at but not purchased, and they get a sense of what your interests are, and they will make recommendations to you. And there are uh, companies that are now claiming that up to one-third of their sales are coming from these product recommendations. And so what that tells me is the AI is actually getting better. The AI can actually figure out what you want before you realize what you want. Really interesting. Uh, I, I wanna, th there's a question from uh, Alana on differences between uh, Chinese companies and US companies. And maybe we could, we could look at retail to kind of, you know, as a lens on that question, you know, in your research and analysis, have you, did you notice any kind of stark differences between the way uh, Chinese retailers are doing, uh, or, or e-commerce platforms are doing business and uh, how a company like Amazon is doing business? 
E-commerce is an area where China is actually ahead of the United States, ahead of us in the sense that there's about twice the percentage of retail sales in China that take place through e-commerce compared to the United States, uh, meaning uh, on a percentage uh, basis, uh, controlling for the differences in population size, twice as many people are shopping online in China uh, compared to uh, the United States. Uh, China has a number of advantages uh, in this area in the sense that privacy is not a big consideration in China. So, you know, some of the privacy rules that restrict innovation in the United States uh, don't have that same impact in China. Uh, China engages in mass surveillance, so there you know, clearly are uh, lots of problems there. But one of the things that has really allowed China to move ahead in AI, and particularly in the e-commerce area, is just the very large data sets that get generated by, one, the large population of China, but then, two, uh, the widespread deployment of mobile payment systems, uh, e-commerce uh, platforms, and online shopping. And when you combine all that, and if you're not worried about uh, privacy, so you can really integrate uh, the data sets, you can really develop AI uh, that uh, uh, advances at a very uh, rapid uh, pace. So uh, China is ahead of us in uh, both the mobile payments area as well as uh, e-commerce in general, and that is likely to continue uh, to be the case. Uh, but in the United States, uh, we are catching up in the sense that more and more people are shopping online uh, the percentage of overall retail sales taking place uh, over uh, e-commerce as opposed through uh, bricks and mortar uh, shops uh, is rising. Uh, and that clearly is going to continue to be the case even after COVID dissipates. Very good. Very good. So uh, I'd like to discuss uh, one other area of significant uh, government R&D uh, and a, a chapter uh, in your book, and that is uh, around national defense. And your book really emphasizes the, the critical role of human judgment in the development and operation of military uh, applications. So what should human decision-making and leadership look like you know, as uh, AI plays a larger role in national defense? Well, I should point out my co-author, John Allen, who now is the president of Brookings, uh, used to be a four-star general uh, in the Marine Corps. Uh, so, you know, spent uh, most of his adult life uh, in the military, has tremendous knowledge about AI in defense uh, and AI in the military areas. So uh, we do have uh, an extensive uh, chapter on that uh, topic. And John just uh, has tremendous knowledge in that area. And what I've learned from him uh, in this area is we are starting to see the rise of autonomous weapon systems. So obviously, we're all familiar with drones, uh, which have been used uh, both in Iraq and Afghanistan, uh, where uh, you know, the drone uh, equipped with uh, cameras can engage in surveillance, uh, engage in intelligence gathering, and be armed with missiles uh, that if we find the right target, uh, we shoot and uh, destroy that individual or uh, that particular vehicle. In the United States, we have a policy where we want to keep humans in the loop, even in the use of these autonomous weapon systems. So again, to use that drone example, that drone image actually gets transmitted uh, back to a human operator the human operator has to look at that image and basically the human has to make the decision to fire the weapon. Like we do not allow the drone itself 
to kind of lock on an image and independently decide to fire. So American uh, policy uh, in, uh, uh, in the AI area, uh, in uh, the use of uh, uh, weapon systems is very much along the lines of keeping the human in the loop. But uh, we also point out in that chapter, not every country around the world follows the same policy. So there is a risk uh, of autonomous weapon systems where the humans are not in the loop and there is actually a great risk of instability in national defense and international security uh, in the sense that an autonomous weapon system may fire on its own and create havoc, create violence, and perhaps spark a much larger uh, a conflict than otherwise would be the case. So uh, that's something we have to keep our eye on and figure out how to manage uh, that type of instability that comes out of these emerging technologies. Very interesting. Uh, so I'd like to kind of shift, uh, you know, we, we've talked now about several uh, industries and I wanted now to, to drill down a bit on, and discuss jobs and skills and education uh, a topic that is near and dear to most of our hearts uh, uh, on this uh, on this conference call, uh, and I wanted to you know get your sense of whether AI is going to change the way that organizations begin hiring in the short term, you know, over say the next two to three years or so. In other words, should a salesperson or uh, a uh, a plant worker start developing some uh, AI skills, be they, you know, learning how to use sales, AI powered sales software, or learn how to uh, use robotics systems, for instance, in a factory. Is this something that we need to really, you know, jump on right now, particularly in the way we think about, uh, you know, moving jobs? Well, the short answer to, the, to that question is yes. People are going to have to learn new skills because uh, AI is going to grow and be deployed more broadly. Robotics is uh, taking off machine learning, uh, data analytics skills. When I'm talking to young people, uh, young people, of course, are very worried about the economy, worried about their own economic future. Uh, one advice on you know what careers are uh, likely uh, to do well. And what I tell them is if your job involves a lot of routine and repetitive tasks, you should be worried because it is very easy to automate routine and repetitive tasks. The more that your job involves creativity or knowledge assessment or innovation of some sort, the more removed you're going to be from a job risk. So there certainly are a number of entry level jobs uh, that are going to be at risk. I gave the example of the fully automated retail store. So sales clerks uh, are definitely going to be at risk. The finance uh, area, uh, wealth management, fraud detection, accountants uh, are going to be at uh, risk uh, just because uh, there are aspects of those jobs that are pretty easy to automate. But it's not just entry-level jobs that are going to be affected. Like the radiology example that I gave of AI being able to read uh, x-rays and CAT scans. Like if you're a radiologist, uh, you're going to have to worry uh, about uh, the uh, broader deployment of AI in the healthcare area. So I do think that there are going to be some job risks, uh, but technology is going to take some jobs, but they're also going to create uh, new jobs as well. But the problem is the mismatch hypothesis. 
the new jobs may require skills uh, that the people who are losing jobs don't currently have. So we're going to have to put uh, more effort into worker retraining uh, to help bring those people along and make sure they don't get left behind. So have you seen any successful initiatives at either kind of the state level or the federal level around reskilling or even in, inside companies that have, that have been successful over the past couple of years? Actually, there are a lot of companies that are now putting uh, serious resources into worker retraining. Uh, AT&T, which I know is a, a Dallas-based uh, uh, company, has uh, put a lot of effort into this. Like They take people who might come into the job in a very intra-level position, like you know, climbing up the telephone pole and uh, making repairs, uh, but they give them job skills that then allow them uh, to advance up the uh, career uh, ladder. And there are lots of other companies doing exactly the same thing. And I think that is really important because it's important obviously to the individual worker uh, because the more skills you have, the better trained you are, uh, the more job security you have and the higher wages that you're going to be able to earn. But it's also good for the company uh, because innovation is going to power future prosperity in lots of different industries and lots of different uh, companies. So I think the key thing is we're all going to need to engage in what we call lifelong learning. Like the old model was you invest in education up through about age 25, and then after that, you're on your own. That model is going to become obsolete. People are going to have to upgrade their job skills at age 30, 40, 50, and 60, basically uh, throughout their uh, uh, lifetimes. And it's not just technical skills. Like people also are going to need soft skills, uh, interpersonal skills, uh, communication skills. Uh, one of uh, my favorite insights comes from Charles Darwin, uh, the famous uh, student of uh, evolution, uh, where he basically said, survival is going to go not to the strongest, nor the most intelligent, but the most adaptable. You know, as we're moving into this new era of the digital economy, being adaptable, being persistent, being resilient, like these are uh, soft skills that are going to be very important because we're going to live in a world of mega change. Uh, there's going to be widespread change at a lot of different levels. People who are adaptable are going to be able to do well. Those who are less adaptable may end up not doing very well at all. Carol, I, there's a question uh, that just came in from Kirsten, and it is related to the application of AI to a particular job, and that is uh, policing. And Kirsten wanted to get your take on AI and, and policing. I, I imagine both the, the potential upside, but also the significant uh, risks. There's a lot of different types of technologies coming into law enforcement. And some of them are very helpful. And some of them, of course, are becoming uh, controversial as well. So we have uh, law enforcement officers who are wearing body cameras that you know, basically record the audio and video of encounters with uh, individual citizens. And that can, be that can be helpful both from the citizen standpoint as well as the police standpoint because it records exactly what happened. So the police will not be subject to wild charges against them. There will be video documentation of exactly uh, what took place. Uh, but then we're also uh, seeing uh, facial recognition uh, software uh, being used by law enforcement. Uh, that is controversial just because of the inaccuracy of some of these uh, facial recognition uh, systems. 
there also are racial disparities. Uh, facial recognition can be much more accurate at uh, successfully identifying Caucasian faces as opposed to African-American uh, uh, faces. So there definitely are lots of new uses of uh, technology in law enforcement in both positive and not very positive ways. Very good. Uh, so Daryl, I wanted to just ask a couple more questions briefly uh, on education and the future of education, and then turn to some of the uh, questions that are coming in from the audience. You know, I, if we look ahead kind of about 10 years, I wanted to get your take on whether you believe educators or education leaders, you know, in 2021 are doing enough to prepare students for an AI economy that I suspect will be quite robust in 2031. Well, educators are certainly trying to prepare young people for the future, but it's actually hard to be effective at doing that because there are going to be new jobs created uh, that don't even exist right now. So essentially, we're having to educate people for a future that to some extent we don't fully know or understand what it's going to be. We certainly know there's going to be much more uh, widespread use of uh, a wide range of new technologies, uh, AI, uh, data analytics, and other uh, types of things, but how they actually play out in the workforce, how they affect individual jobs. We know that young people uh, are going to need a combination of both technical skills and the soft skills that I was referring to earlier, you know, skills of adaptability, ability to communicate, to be able to work in teams with other people, uh, uh, things of that sort. So when I talk either uh, in high schools or on uh, college campuses, I tell uh, young people as well as teachers and professors, like this is the future you should be envisioning. You should assume technology innovation is really going to accelerate in the next five to 10 years. The pace of change is going to be much more rapid than what most people envision right now because it's not just one new technology that's coming along, it's 10 or 15 or 20 or 50 new technologies that are developing simultaneously. And that's what makes it uh, difficult to predict like how those new technologies are going to interact, how they're gonna combine and how they're ultimately going to affect the workforce. So there's, gonna, there's still sig significant need to have uh, critical thinking skills, perhaps to have a humanities background, philosophy, you know, a background in literature probably will still be relevant. Uh, uh, disciplines like psychology and social science, I suspect, will still be relevant is, is what you're saying here. They're not going to get kind of crowded out of the curriculum. Absolutely. Uh, people are going to need a wide range of skills. And it's certainly not just going to be the technical skills and the data skills. Uh, but, you know, some of these humanities fields actually are going to be uh, very important uh, because somebody has to be able to translate the technical and scientific concepts to the rest of us. Someone has to understand design, like how you have a complex AI-based product that a normal human being can use. Like none of us actually understand how an algorithm operates but we are going to be using products 
that are based on AI or based on machine learning or based on uh, data analytics. And so we're going to need uh, uh, people from humanities background that can perform that art of translation, of design, of, of kind of making products uh, that you don't have to be a computer scientist to know how right. to use them. Right, right. very good. Um, you know, I, I recently saw a prediction that about two thirds of today's children, you know, kindergartners, third, up to third, fourth graders, are gonna go on and work in jobs that haven't been invented yet. So I had kind of one final uh, question for you. Uh, and that is if you were to name one or two job titles that haven't been invented yet, but may very well uh, be around in 10 years or maybe common in 10 years, what would that job title or job titles be? Well, one would be robot supervisor. Uh, we actually already have warehouses where a lot of the work is actually performed by robots, but then there are humans that have to oversee them and kind of deal with robot mistakes. Uh, I've seen it in uh, warehouses where a robot is bringing products that people have ordered so that they can be put in boxes and then uh, shipped out to consumers. And sometimes the robot will drop something. So there has to be a human that oversees the robot. So uh, that will be a new type of job. Uh, a second one, uh, I would call it an AI legal assistant. Increasingly lawyers, you know, a lot of what lawyers do is kind of reviewing past cases, reviewing uh, documents. Well, there's going to be AI that actually can do that. They're in the same way that AI can read the medical and scientific literature and figure out what are the new compounds that might form new drug therapies or new vaccines. There is AI that can read the legal literature, uh, uh, the, uh, the, the past uh, uh, cases, the past uh, precedents that have taken uh, place and help the lawyer kind of figure out what are the relevant precedents and how uh, might that affect a particular uh, case. And then ultimately, my favorite one, this is not necessarily a new job title, but it's a new type of career and a new type of activity will be robot rights activists, meaning hmm. at some point, as robots get more sophisticated, we're going to have a debate. What rights do robots have? Do they have any rights? Are we just going to treat them as machines or as they gain intelligence, have the ability to learn, have the ability to adapt? Like at what point do they take on rights? You know, that's kind of a very abstract and philosophical type of conversation. And we may be decades away from actually having that. But at some point, the robots are going to get uh, sophisticated to the point where we're going to need to have that conversation. Fascinating, fascinating. Uh, Liz, do I have time for, for one more question coming from the audience? Yes, if it's a shorter one. Okay. Well, <laughs> it, it, it isn't. There, there are a couple of questions that came in just about uh, wanted to get Daryl's view on whether he thought AI could was particularly well suited for some of the grand challenges in front of us, like our infrastructure or solving, say, environmental challenges. Wanna, wanted to get your take on that questions along those lines. Yeah, I'll, I'll give uh, short answers uh, to that. Uh, the answer is yes. Uh, AI can be helpful both on infrastructure as well as on uh, environmental sustainability uh, questions. And, and in fact, AI is already uh, being uh, used. 
uh, in the environmental area, uh, AI can help us on sustainability questions just in terms of building designs, like what are the ways to design buildings uh, that uh, handle heating and cooling most efficiently, you know, turning the lights off when you're uh, not in the room, uh, things of that sort. Uh, and in the infrastructure area, like one of the big challenges is how do we spot decaying roads, highways, bridges, and dams before there actually is a problem. And so AI is being used uh, in combination with sensors uh, as a form of preventive maintenance, like kind of figuring out where the dam might be at risk before the dam actually breaks. So AI can be very helpful on those types of challenges. Fascinating, fascinating. Uh, well, well, thank you. Uh, and uh, Liz, I'm going to turn it over to you right now. So over to you. Well, thank you. Thank you both. And uh, Jim, you are right. It is just simply a fascinating topic that we could listen to for much longer than what we've just done. But uh, I appreciate both of you. So thanks. Uh, and I would like to remind everyone to pick up a copy of Daryl's book, Turning Point, at our bookshop partner in Terabang Books. Use code DFWWORLD for 10% off your online purchase. And to catch up on our past programs, head on over to our YouTube channel at DFWWORLD. And if you're not a member of the council yet, we'd love to have you. We'd love to meet you in person as soon as it's safe to do so. So please visit dfwworld.org for more information on membership. And just a quick reminder that if you would like to sponsor a program, we would really appreciate that. You can contact Alana at 956-466-1100. And thank you all for joining us. Have a wonderful night.